Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home, office, and garage using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. Smithville Telephone Company, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, offering bundled packages, high-speed internet, and wireless phones. Smithville Telephone, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, and today we're going to talk about environmental issues in Indiana and about changes in the Indiana Department of Environmental Management. Joining me in the studio is co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael, and we have three guests with us today. Tim Maloney is here. He's the senior policy advisor for the Hoosier Environmental Council. Uh, IDEM Assistant Commissioner Scott Nally is with us, and also IDEM Assistant Commissioner Dan Murray. So if you would like to join us on the program, there are a variety of ways. You can phone us at 855-0811 in Bloomington or outside of the local calling area, 877-285-9348. You can follow us on Twitter. You can uh, follow us at Noon Edition or you can visit WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. So we we have all our bases covered. If you can't reach us, you've got to be under a rock somewhere. That's right. Drive on over to the telecom building. No, don't do that. (laughs) All right. Thank you guys for being here. You drove down from Indy today and and, uh, Tim, we're glad to see you back. Return visit. Thank you. So let's – Let's start out by talking about the mission of IDEM. What What is the, the mission and the history of the Indiana Department of Environmental Management? Uh, Scott Nally. Mm-hmm. Uh, our mission is to protect Hoosiers and the environment while allowing for a prosperous economy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's pretty simple. Pretty simple. Say. Keep it simple. Yeah. Okay. Um, I know there, there have been some uh, changes in your operation Recently, and I think I think there are, there are different ways to look at it. I know that there that there have been many groups that have been very critical, saying that uh, you, that the, the department has done away with uh, the enforcement division. And uh, but I did find your I'm, I'm leafing through some papers here. I found your original press release this morning that that actually talks about the reorganization and suggests that it was. It was done to, to uh, reorganize compliance and enforcement and to make things much more efficient. So uh, why don't you – OK. Sure. I can speak to that. Right. This is uh, Dan. Dan, Murray. go ahead. Go ahead. We have been talking about this for several years at our agency and what we are trying to do uh, for the last four years is, one, improve compliance rates. It's our goal to have all Indiana regulated entities in compliance. That's good for the environment. It's uh, good for community relationships with businesses and so on. What we found though after four years of trying to figure out how to improve compliance rates that we had been unsuccessful. We hadn't moved the bar at all. What we also found is that it was still taking us six to 12 months, sometimes even longer to resolve uh, enforcement cases. Once we did observe noncompliance, still taking around a year to get those uh, those sources back into compliance and resolve the cases. Well, we started looking at what other models are out there, what we might be able to do to do things differently. We talked with EPA and EPA uh, had two different models, one where the compliance group is separate from the enforcement group and that's the way IDEM had it previously. However, the other half of their regional offices across the country uh, had compliance and enforcement together. And What that means is the compliance inspector, the one out in the field, who's observing the source and understands that source the best is also the one that is involved in resolving that compliance issue all the way to the end. They identify it. They work with the source and what is timely resolution, what is an appropriate penalty, and then work to get that source back into compliance in the most uh, efficient manner. We chose that other model. We were unsuccessful and over the years, the agency has shown that it hasn't been a very successful model in improving compliance or resolving compliance issues. So we simply chose the other model to bring those two groups together and have that responsibility in one area. We have not done away with our enforcement program or responsibilities or any of the things you might be reading. We simply have brought that responsibility under uh, one program, compliance and enforcement together. Now, this took effect uh, the first of the year? Right around there. And what kind of 
um, impact have you seen? Has, has it, has it ha- has it had time enough to tell you whether whether it's really working or not? We have had a few cases in our office because one thing you have to think of is now we have to do we have to rewrite our procedures, have new uh, flow charts and how we send information through the office and so on. But we've already had a few cases where the inspector would do an inspection literally a week ago. And that, refer- that referral folder would already be on my desk to review to now work with the source in uh, writing that agreed order, getting that signed, how that source will return to compliance, pay the appropriate penalty, and, and move on. Literally a week or two after the inspection, we're in the old model, that would be four to six months after an inspection by the time the case was drawn up, referred to a separate office, where now a case manager has to become familiar with it, drop the paperwork, get it back through the system for review. Um, We're already seeing results. We're not all the way there yet. But uh, early on, we've had some that the inspectors have uh, taken on this new task and done very well. Mm -hmm. For the very uninformed, who do you deal with the most? Are your noncompliance issues, are they large industries, smaller businesses? Who do you work with most often? It's a mix. Really? It is. We get, uh, I would say on volume, the number of cases, it's probably the smaller entities. Those that don't have in-house environmental managers Mm -hmm. understand their responsibilities very well. Mm -hmm. And then we do have some sources in Indiana, some large ones, that uh, are either very aging facilities, and that sometimes leads to compliance problems. But then also we have some sources that uh, don't do a very good job complying. Mm -hmm. So some kind of willful noncompliance. I would say some, maybe not willful, but knowing Mm -hmm. that the management system isn't working quite right in that organization, and they're repeat customers to our compliance program. I want to bring Tim in. Tim Maloney, Senior Policy Advisor for the Hoosier Environmental Council. What's your reaction to the changes that IDEM has made? Well, we have um, we have ex- expressed some concern and criticism about the changes, and I, I think for two reasons. Um, one is related to process. Um, there, generally speaking, the changes um, came forward without a lot of um, uh, communication uh, with stakeholders or affected people or opportunity for public input, and. Um, uh, that's a concern for a lot of folks. Um, on the substance part, it's um, uh, I guess the jury's still out as far as we're concerned on on whether uh, this will result in an improvement or not. And um, and I think again, having more information and um, communication with the agency and understanding the basis for the changes and. And um, some, you know, analysis that that uh, led to the changes would be helpful for the public to evaluate their merit, and uh, and so far we haven't seen a lot of that. Well, well, both Dan and Scott were very candid in saying that they felt like the old structure wasn't really working mm-hmm. as effectively as uh, they would like. What was your evaluation of the old structure with the enforcement division being separate? Um, well, there certainly been. Um, enforcement concerns and issues um, for some time at, at IDEM and predating um, uh, Dan and Scott and even this administration that um, uh, have been the subject of criticism. So uh, the, the goal of improving um, the enforcement process at IDEM, you know, w- we support, but um, we want to make sure that it's not just change for change's sake, but will result in real improvements. And and there are, you know, notable examples where um, of uh, cases where uh, the enforcement process didn't work. And uh, one, for example, would be this uh, recycling company in northern Indiana, Vim Recycling, that's had a uh, record of chronic problems there, and 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 has even led to proposed legislation in the Indiana State House um, uh, as a result of that. Um, so we want to see uh, improvements there. Um, in addition to just the agency's efficiency, you know, it's important that their activity be effective as well. And that's where um, I think 
we still need to be convinced on that point. Scott? Yeah, we're in complete agreement on that. Obviously, you know, we had – we measure. We, we have established metrics when we first got on board a little over four years ago. And like Dan alluded to, we were not moving the bar at all on bringing people – one, timeliness and then the mm-hmm. rate of enforcement or compliance in this case. And on the VIM case, he's quite right. That's a prime example of one that gets caught in process. And then to make matters even more complicated on VIM, now it's tied in court. Mm. So we have the attorney general's office who steps in and picks up the case and then they represent the state in court. And we've asked – we've been in front of a judge several times now and have asked for various things and now you're just tied in court. That's the unfortunate thing that is out of our control. So we try to do what we can to control. Mm -hmm. In this case, try another model, see if it works. Because what we knew what we were doing was not working. Mm-hmm. OK. We have people who have called us. One of our callers is uh, – I, I guess was a little impatient. But we hope that he'll come back. Uh, our other caller is Sam and Sam's on the line. Sam? Hi. I, I wondered what um, the uh, people there can say about the uh, report in today's paper about experimentation on, quote, uh, clean burning coal at our power plant and whether they're – is any association with um, um, <laughs> scientists rather than operators on that? I'd be glad to hear what, what people have to say about that. All right. Dan, I think, is going to go, go first. Dan? Sure. Uh, well, I haven't read the article, so I'm not sure exactly what type of experimentation there has been with clean burning coal. But I'll speak just for a minute about clean coal. And we do believe that uh, coal can be used in a clean way and uh, many of the projects now, the ones that are coming to us are not conventional coal-fired plants. They are gasifying coal or using coal and transforming it into a liquid state prior to being used. And in the case of gasification, which we do support, uh, you can remove uh, 95 percent of the SO2 emissions uh, prior to um, actually using that now synthetic gas and when you gasify the coal and over 60 percent of the uh, NOx emissions. So we believe that coal does have a place in our state's energy future. Um, our, coal is, our, our, our energy system is largely dependent on it today but we are promoting only the clean, co- clean coal technologies going forward because now you can remove the pollutants prior uh, to emission. So I'd like to see more of that. I'm not sure if this experimentation that was in the article today is is that type of coal technology, uh, but we are uh, promoting the gasification and removal of those pollutants uh, uh, prior to emission. Tim, do you want to react to that? Uh, I too did not see today's story. Um, clearly, there's a great deal of discussion and um, uh, research going on with um, – ways to improve the environmental performance of coal and um, and we think that has merit that that research is going on and, and look for ways to do that more cleanly. But um, there has been so much emphasis on this idea of, of clean coal uh, technology that we're losing sight of a, a more important long-term goal of moving towards cleaner um, forms of energy and energy efficiency technology and um, uh, that is where we'd like to see the emphasis be in a in the policy forum and research forums. Mm-hmm. Wind, solar, that sort of thing? Yes. Mm-hmm. I want to follow up on that in a few minutes but, but John, our phone caller is back so let's go back, <laughs> let's go back to the phone. John, thanks for, thanks for get, coming back to us. Yeah, not, I am not quite as much concerned about process as I am results and one of the barometers that, that I use on how well Indiana is doing environmentally and managing the environment is whether or not our creeks, streams, and rivers um, can be used for swimming and for eating fish from. So uh, we have a lot of warnings out there. And so that's what I'd like to know is when will we be able to swim and eat fish from all of our streams, creeks, and rivers? Good question. Scott? Yeah, that is a good question. (laughs) And and the answer is a little complicated. Um, A couple of things I can attack that kind of a little bit on. One is uh, four years ago, we had a significant large backlog of our wastewater treatment plant permits. Those are the communities out there that needed to treat their water and then discharge into our lakes and streams that Mm -hmm. we fish from and swim in. And with that backlog meant that they were administratively extended under the regulations of when they were first issued. And then over the years, those regulations have ratcheted down 
to provide cleaner water for us to swim in and fish in. And now that we've been able to get most of those backlogs, we're down to just a handful left of wastewater treatment plants, and there's a couple of them up in the northern part of the state that we're wrestling with on some anti-deg issues. But as we get people to come into those new permit restrictions, then you'll see that buffering of eventually cleaner water. You know, it takes time. Mother Nature takes a little bit of time to become you – know, she's resilient, but to catch up and it allows her to catch up. So that's one way to kind of tackle that. It's a complicated – and then the mercury issue, which is what he's mm-hmm. probably referring to on fish, the more air emission controls that you know we can assist some of our regulated entities into achieving. And as they ratchet down some of the PM2.5 and SOX and NOx requirements and mercury catch, you'll start having less of that being deposed or deposited in our lakes and streams and rivers. The unfortunate thing is it's such a global – I mean a lot of what we get for deposition in Indiana was not necessarily generated in Indiana, which is what makes this question mm-hmm. incredibly more complicated. Mm-hmm. It's, it's global. It's what's coming from the west or very far west, China, Japan, India, that, that do not have as tight restrictions as we do in the United States. Well, I know that we, we here in Bloomington began – wrestling with this issue 30, 40, 30, let's see, 35 years mm-hmm. ago about with PCBs and, and there have been issues with eating the fish in the mm-hmm. local streams. Can you give us an update on that? Is, has there been, have there been any bans on eating fish from these streams lifted? Do you anticipate that at any time? Don't anticipate. Um, we just recently updated our 303D list, which we do that biannually, and that's the um, listing of impaired water. So at least we can get the communication out there to the folks that, hey, these are some of the streams that are impacted. And then that also allows us, and we're going to talk about some of the economics here shortly, mm-hmm. to focus some of our efforts on those streams and rivers that are on the 303D list mm-hmm. so that we can try to get better assessment data, try to look at those that are impacting it, maybe further reduce some of the wastewater treatment discharge requirements on them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Tim? Well, clearly we need to, to do a lot more to um, Im- improve our water quality from a number of respects and not just controlling pollution but uh, implementing prevention practices that, that eliminate the dechar- discharges altogether. And there's a a lot of good work being done in that regard, and we'd like to see more state investment in in pollution prevention uh, technologies on the um, uh, aspect of mercury pollution. Um, we really feel that Indiana missed a big opportunity a couple of years ago to implement uh, a uh, mercury pollution control program on on power plants, which is our biggest source of unregulated mercury pollution. Um, is that airborne? Uh, airborne uh-huh. pollution that through atmospheric process ends up in our waterways mm-hmm. and then in the fish. Um, that uh, Indiana could have acted um, with by implementing a strong and technically feasible rule to to control that pollution, and instead we relied on uh, the federal rule, which was subsequently thrown out in court um, as being uh, not consistent with the Clean Air Act. So. Um, we missed that opportunity. I'm sure the new administration is going to come back with a new proposal to to uh, address that. Mm-hmm. But um, in the meantime, we're still seeing a lot of mercury pollution out there. So, mm-hmm. All right. Our topic today is the environment in Indiana. It's uh, one of the topics that when Mary Catherine and I do the uh, fundraising at the end of the year, people call in and let us know what they want to talk about. The environment always comes up. So we're mm-hmm. thrilled to have uh, three great guests here today. Tim Maloney, Senior Policy Advisor for the Hoosier Environmental Council, and Scott Nally and Dan Murray, who are both uh, Assistant Commissioners with the Indiana Department of Environmental Management. You can join us in a number of ways. Uh, we are Twittering now. We aren't sure we know what that means, but we're doing it. <laughs> I, we are Twittering. So uh, follow at Noon Edition. Um, you can also visit us wfiu.org slash noon edition. Visit us online and two phone numbers, as usual, 855-0811 in Bloomington, 877-285-9348 from outside of the Bloomington calling area. Now, we've talked a lot about what you as an organ, what your organizations do. What can individuals do? Let's say they're aware of, of an issue that uh, maybe somebody's dumping inappropriately. Maybe the business they work for, they're aware of some inappropriate um, uh, things being done there regarding the environment. What, what can 
individuals do uh, to help along these lines? Actually, we just recently updated our website um, at IDEM to include a citizen's guide on it, which is an online citizen tool where you can click into the citizen tool and if you see an open dump or you see somebody open burning, exactly what phone number to call and who to contact or who to email. Mm -hmm. And we just recently updated that. So I would definitely encourage folks to either use our spill line which is published, or also get on our website, take a look at the citizen guide, and then use the citizen guide to contact the appropriate people within the agency to address their concerns. Can they do that anonymously? In oh, case? yes. Okay. Oh, yes. And then we have our whole CTAP program where they can call over to OPPTA, our Office of Pollution Prevention and Technical Assistance, and discuss things confidentially also. Okay, great. Yeah, I, I was leaving an IU basketball game and somebody had thrown a can out the window of their their van and this woman walked, picked up the can, walked up to the window of the van, knocked on it, and said, "Excuse me, you dropped this," which I thought was a, a wonderful citizen uh, involvement. So <laughs> sure it was great. Um, I, I wanted to go back to what Mary Catherine mentioned before about wind and, and solar, and talk about whether uh, you know where Indiana is. In this, I know that we've got some wind farms in the northern part mm-hmm. of the state. I had a caller, um, I can't remember mm-hmm. if it was a caller, or an emailer, or somebody that too. recently talked about um, perhaps we should be looking for industry in the southern part of the state to support more wind farms in the northern part of the state instead of other kinds of industry. So where where are we on this? Well, energy efficiency and renewable energy are are part of our state programs. We have uh, several different grant and loan and tax credit programs to incentivize uh, those types of projects being implemented. We do have one of the largest wind farms in the country now in, in northern Indiana. Um, we're promoting all that we can based on uh, what we have to work with today. Um, I know that uh, Tim's group uh, has uh, uh, plans to uh, try to promote uh, furthering that through requirements. But right now our agency's position has been that we want to support that type of activity and let the market drive that. But as soon as there are requirements, we're ready to implement those. Can you describe a wind farm? What, what does a wind farm actually do? What does it actually do? Yeah, okay. how, how does it, it work? If you could picture, well, uh, the traditional windmills that uh, come up in my mind are the ones that look like, uh, you know, the Dutch type with the, uh, the big blades. Now they look like very large airplane propellers, very, very large. In fact, uh, sometimes 150 to 200 feet across from tip to tip. If you can imagine those spinning, and it, they look rather slow when they're spinning, mm-hmm. but since they're so large, uh, as they spin, they uh, turn uh, – through magnetics, generate electricity in, in the turning and uh, electrical fields that are generated. But you have to use the power right then. And that's one of the disadvantages of, of wind power and the fact that it, we promote it as a part of our state's energy policy, but it, it needs to be a part of it mm-hmm. because uh, I think last year that wind farm um, produced power less than half the time of the available hours. So the other time you need electricity, you need something that's a little bit more reliable. So we do promote a diverse energy platform, wind, solar, uh, renewable uh, energy sources like biomass. But we still think that coal plays a part there, clean coal, in that when it's dark and when the wind's not blowing, people are still going to want electricity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tim, do you want to react? Well, we're – I mean, we've hardly scratched the surface of the opportunities in um, in clean energy technologies, and um, uh, so our group, uh, along with a lot of others, have have really been uh, pushing for policy changes to uh, to do much better at that. Um, uh, one possibility that uh, now 27 other states have done, and and Congress is considering, is a renewable electricity standard that requires a certain percentage of our electric power to come from renewables, wind and solar and biomass. And uh, it's been a very uh, successful um, policy approach in these other states. Um, Indiana has very substantial uh, resources for producing renewable power, including wind and biomass in particular. Uh, We also have a great deal of manufacturing potential. A recent study uh, puts the potential at as many as 40,000 jobs in the renewable energy manufacturing sector and uh, such as manufacturing turbine components and 
uh, those kind of things. There's a company in Bedford that does that. Um, one of our steel companies in northern Indiana is manufacturing turbine components. Uh, it's it's a huge opportunity, mm-hmm. and and it, it really needs to be more than just a free market because we have plenty of government intervention on behalf of coal and more conventional energy sources, and it's time we have the uh, same level of of public focus on on renewables and mm-hmm. energy efficiency, which are uh, much cleaner to operate, are cost effective now, and. Um, uh, can help keep us competitive in the global economy. And interestingly, is a kind of a whole new industry. So there are uh, job opportunities. I know that the solar uh, farm, if you will, or not solar, I'm sorry, the windmill uh, ha- uh, set up in, in northern Indiana has created a whole new industry there of people who are building those and learning how they work and then servicing them. And it's, it's amazing. It's just a, a whole new trend. Yep. All right. We've hit uh, our break time. So I want to remind you that you can talk with Tim Maloney from the Hoosier Environmental Council or Scott Nally and Dan Murray from the uh, Indiana Department of Environmental Management. If you just will join us in the second half of the program, you can also uh, find us on Twitter. Go follow at at Noon Edition on Twitter. So uh, we'll be right back. You're listening to Noon Edition. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. You can take WFIU programs with you by downloading our podcasts. Podcasting is a convenient and easy way to download audio files directly to your computer, iPod, or portable player. You can download podcasts of full-length programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, as well as movie, play, and opera reviews. Find out more by going to our website, WFIU.org. On Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, the WFIU News Team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Listen at 8.33 a.m. and 5.45 p.m. every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to catch that day's feature. If you miss one, that's okay. They're archived on our website, WFIU.org, and the best features from each week can be heard Saturday mornings at 7.45. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. And we have three guests today. Tim Maloney is Senior Policy Advisor for the Hoosier Environmental Council. And Assistant Commissioner Scott Nally and Assistant Commissioner Dan Murray are here from the Indiana Department of Environmental Management. If you'd like to join us on the program, you can call us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can join the discussion on WFIU.org slash Noon Edition, or you can join the discussion on Twitter. Follow at Noon Edition. So uh, the economy, of course, is uh, the overriding issue for a lot of people, a lot of businesses, a lot of organizations as we uh, start slugging through 2009. What's the, uh, the, the state of the economy meant for in the environment in Indiana and for environmental protection? Well, for one thing, there's just uh, the overall state budget and that's one I'll let, I'll let Scott talk about a little bit. But in the regulatory program realm, uh, what we've done is or we're trying to help facilities right now that are either uh, closing their plants altogether or closing down uh, portions of their processes. Many times when you shut down a facility, you're generating new waste streams that you might not have had before. And what we have uh, still, unfortunately, in Indiana are some contaminated properties from buildings and, and businesses that are no longer uh, in operation. So we're working with them when we know that there's a facility that is planning to close, either through their notification of their employees, which must be reported to the state, or even through the newspaper. Sometimes we get information that a facility might be closing. We'll reach out to them in an assistance mode and say, hey, we understand that uh, you're either going to be closing altogether or be slowing down. We'd like to come out there and help you understand what waste streams you might be generating, how we can help you understand what the regulatory requirements are, and to manage that waste and now this equipment that may even become a waste uh, responsibly so that later on it doesn't become another cleanup site or another uh, problem in a community. Can you give us an example of, of a company you've worked with? You don't have to name names, but just how it's sort of played out. 
Sure. Uh, metal processing facilities. Uh, unfortunately, there's a few of those that have closed recently. Uh, the bath that they use for the, treating the metal and sometimes the coatings that they use on the metal. Uh, now that they're, they're closing down those facilities, that, that material is no longer a, a process material. It's now a waste material. And we make sure that they uh, package that up properly label it properly and that its final destination will ensure that it's handled in a responsible manner. We'd like to be there and help them through that process. And even if we find something at the time that might be a paperwork problem, we're there to help them. We want to prevent there from being a problem down the road when they close the doors. We've all heard the horror stories of a building closed up and you, you open it up a year later and find that there's all this waste uh, abandoned essentially. So. Uh, we're helping them through that process and making sure that they're following their environmental responsibilities. Kokomo had a situation like that when the steel plant closed, and uh, that ended up being one of the biggest Superfund sites, if not the biggest Superfund site ever. I assume that's exactly what you're trying to avoid. That's exactly that's what we're trying to avoid, right? Got some other uh, questions I want to ask about the economic impact of what's going on uh, around the country, but uh, we have to go back to the phones. John, John, go ahead. Uh, hello. Um, and coal is really big business in Indiana. One of your speakers uh, used the expression clean coal. Um, which to my amateur understanding is, uh, is uh, not correct. I mean, you burn coal, you've got a lot of bad stuff to deal with no matter what. Could somebody expand on that, please? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, and you're exactly correct. When you burn coal, you do uh, produce uh, waste and emissions, uh, air pollutants uh, from that process. When we talk about clean coal, what they're doing is gasifying the coal through heat and pressure. It's not burning. They're simply pulling the volatile gases out of the coal. Then you can clean up those gases, take the pollutants out of the gases, which would be now similar to natural gas – Remove the pollutants before you burn the natural gas in a turbine, and then you can handle those pollutants before they're ever emitted. That's what we mean by clean coal. What we're also finding is that the future of coal uh, in a climate change or greenhouse gas controlled um, society, which we are moving in that direction – is that we're going to have to capture the CO2 also from mm -hmm. these processes. And gasifying coal also provides that opportunity to be able to capture the CO2 before it's emitted. Because once it's emitted, we're finding it's just nearly impossible, if not just simply cost prohibitive, to be able to control CO2 at the end of the pipe. Mm -hmm. In a gasification technology, you can remove even the CO2 along with the other pollutants prior to it actually being emitted. And what do you do with it? Well, today there's many different um, projects that are in place to try to show what we can do with it in an environmentally responsible manner. But carbon sequestration in uh, geologic formations is one that is in use today across the world, not here uh, in a very large extent in the United States. However, there are a few pilot projects. So are you talking about pumping it into the ground into a porous material, much like uh, you store natural gas underground? Similar, although don't picture it as being a large open void where you're going to right. fill it with CO2. You're looking at the pore space between right. the rocks and the grains and so on or displacing uh, maybe salt water that's mm -hmm. in geologic formations thousands of feet below the surface, mm -hmm. displacing that with CO2, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because we have that kind of uh, – we can do that here in southern Indiana. Right, southern Indiana is a right. prime place to, to give right. that a try. Now, this coal gasification is not really a new technology. It's been around for a long time. It has. A very long time, in fact. But but it's the, the latter part of the process that is new to the equation, the cleaning up part of it. Okay. All right. Right. All right. Tim? I want to make sure I understand everything. Uh, yeah. I'd, on the question of um, uh, clean coal, certainly there are technologies that allow us to reduce the, the environmental impact of using coal to produce power. But um, just the nature of the, the fuel is that we're never – it's never going to be environmentally benign. You, mm -hmm. when, you, when you mine and burn coal, you have a lot of environmental aspects to it and the mining uh, of coal has many environmental impacts that are of concern and uh, particularly um, here these days is mountaintop removal that's going on in the Appalachian region of America. 
that is having huge environmental impacts. So um, we're not going to eliminate all those impacts. Um, the technology in some respects is um, is still not at a commercial scale, particularly geologic sequestration. Um, so, you know, again, all those uh, problems, while we're, we're going to be using coal for a while and we need to do it as safely as we can, uh, we still need much greater emphasis on on moving to a uh, cleaner energy technology. Does your does your group hold out any long term hope for coal, or is it your your hope, the Hoosier Environmental Council's hope, that it would be more of a stopgap measure until we come up with some some better long term solutions? Yeah, I'd say it's a stopgap measure. That mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately, um, we're going to have the technology to to greatly reduce um, using fossil fuels for energy. And Mm -hmm. and there is a great deal of work being done in that regard right now. Mm -hmm. All right. Our phone number is 855-0811-877-285-9348. Follow us on Twitter. It's uh, at Noon Edition. And you can also visit us, wfiu.org slash Noon Edition. We have a phone call. Okay. So let's go to Kenneth. Kenneth? Hello. Uh, I was wondering on the uh, on the mercury in the streams. I mean, what chemical forms that in? And does it sit on the bottom? I mean, if they quit putting out mercury pollution in the coal plant, how long would it take to clean up? What would happen? You're kind of breaking up there, but I think uh, Dan may have may have understood. Yeah, I think I, I understood, Kenneth. Uh, as Scott mentioned, uh, mercury atmospheric deposition is a global problem. Most of the mercury deposited here in Indiana is not generated in Indiana, and a large uh, percentage of that is not generated in the United States. However, what happens is it is either deposited on the land or uh, onto the surface waters. That which is deposited on the land, some of that runs off into the surface water. Once it settles down into the sediments of the streams, ponds, and lakes, it, uh, in this oxygen-deprived environment now, down in the sediments, that muck uh, mm-hmm. down at the bottom of that uh, water body, it, it transforms to methylmercury. And then the benthic organisms uh, will take up that methylmercury and then it just moves right on up the food chain and into the fish to where mm-hmm. they uh, then have enough mercury in it that, you know, it's unsafe to eat, uh, you know, an amount of that fish in, in a period of time. So that's the process uh, through atmospheric deposition. Okay, I mean, that's what happens, but... How long would it take to reduce it? Is it going to take nature to clean it up, or do we have to have a big cleanup like PCBs? I mean, what... It will, it will eventually work itself out of the system. As we continue to reduce mercury emissions, which we are working with, and as Tim mentioned, uh, the mercury rule for Indiana, um, unfortunately, the federal rule, is, which is what we were following, uh, was vacated. That delayed our, our controlling mercury further. It will work its way out of that system, uh, but it's going to be, again, contingent a large extent on how much mercury is being emitted elsewhere in the mm-hmm. world. It can stay active in the atmosphere, not even being deposited for a year, just moving around the globe before it's deposited. So we can start reducing now. We'll start to see that improvement, but it is going to take some time. I don't know exactly the number of years as we're reducing it. Uh, it it's something needs to be addressed globally, though. Yeah, I just wonder if it would be 10 years or 1,000 years or whatever. Yeah, with the half-life oh, okay. type sure, of thing. Sure, no, I, yeah. I can speak to that, Kenneth. Um, I would say it, what we found is 10 to 12 years you'll start to see improvements, but probably 20 to 50 years before you're actually seeing fish without mercury in them if we were to stop emitting mercury and then through this deposition and, and uh, food system. Okay, well, how about... How about acid rain and the sulfur? I haven't heard anything mentioned about that. Okay, well, the acid rain program uh, did a lot. It, it cut SO2 emissions by roughly half. However, the clean air interstate rule now has further reductions on SO2. Uh, acid rain today uh, isn't a problem. What we do have still, though, from SO2 emissions or sulfur dioxide is we still do have visibility problems. We do have fine particulate matter in the air that is a respiratory problem um, from sulfur dioxide. So is that the, smog? Yes, it is one of the components of smog. Yes, it is. Uh, however, the clean air interstate rule over the next 
I'd say five years because there's a 2012 and a 2015 attainment deadline that we should see significant reductions in SO2 emissions uh, well beyond what the acid rain program produced. All right. Yeah. All right, uh, Kenneth. Okay. Well, I can I do one more? Yeah, we've got very quickly. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I, was, I was wondering about the, the – uh, I wasn't about the acid rain, but it was uh, – uh, uh, oh, uh, wouldn't it be less pollution if we brought in western hard coal instead of burning local coal? Indiana coal is horrible. Okay, let's uh, – we'll, we'll answer that one, and then if you have more, call back. Sure. Right. The, the use of Indiana coal, which we do want to see our state's natural resources used, it's a balancing act. And how states comply with the uh, air regulations is through a balance of using Indiana coal and western coal or if you choose to use Indiana coal, you are going to need more aggressive pollution control equipment to remove the pollutants. So we do want to still see Indiana coal used. Some use it by blending it with western coal to reduce the amount of pollutants. Others choose to put on uh, more and better efficient pollution control devices to remove those pollutants. Tim, did you, you were wanting to talk earlier. I don't know if you... Well, I was just going to add something to, to Dan's comments about uh, mercury. Um, there are a number of studies around um, uh, the United States and elsewhere that show when you make uh, local reductions in mercury emissions, you do start seeing reductions in environmental mercury pretty pretty quickly. So it's, it also makes the link that uh, there's a local impact uh, as well as the impact of um, global emissions. So that's nice. You feel like you have a little more power in your own backyard. That's yes. important. Mm -hmm. Can we follow up on that just a little bit? Um, when we're talking about a worldwide problem, we have to talk about a worldwide solution, and, and certainly we look, we look to our national government for, for our help along those lines. Two questions for you, Tim. Uh, what is your uh, – the Hoosier Environmental Council's national affiliation? I assume there probably is one. And then um, what kind of promises or um, uh, work are you looking for out of this new administration regarding environmental impacts from other places in the world? Mm -hmm. Well, on the first part, the Hoosier Environmental Council is a homegrown group. We're a state-level group with uh, no formal affiliation with national groups, although we, we network with uh, regional and national mm -hmm. groups and collaborate uh, in many respects. Uh, but, I mean, we're just an Indiana group. I didn't so, know that. Okay. Yep. Um, on the second question, um, we have uh, – uh, a lot of hope for the new administration on um, on the whole range of uh, environmental problems, and you're see we're seeing a lot of quick action already. Uh, you know, the new president has said in in crisis there's opportunity, and and boy, he's he's taking that to heart and moving forward on a lot of energy policy. Uh, the stimulus bill had a a lot of funding for energy programs and public transit and passenger rail. Uh, all things that are desperately in need of, of um, implementation, uh, you know, yeah. implementation and support. So, um, y you know, there's um, uh, we're seeing good signs, and and we hope that's going to translate into uh, a lot of specific actions. Okay, great. All right, we have uh, less than ten minutes to go in the program. We have two callers and an email that I know of, and probably have more out there. Uh, let's go to the phone first, and Jennifer. Um, yeah, hi. This question is, um, I guess, how, I guess the basis of the question is how much interagency communication in Indiana, like does IDEM do? Because it doesn't make a lot of sense to be concerned with capturing the CO2 from coal burning, you know, while the division of forestry is increasing the harvesting of trees on state property by a factor of whatever, seven or ten or. Um, how, do you communicate with them, or do they just not care, or what's the deal here? Scott? Yeah, I can, I can address that. Um, actually, we communicate regularly with all our sister agencies. We have both formal and informal communication. The formal one is we meet us, DNR, NDOT on certain projects on a quarterly basis. And then we have more of an informal 
where pick up the phone, go downstairs, we're quick on email on it. But we also have back on the formal one, a lot of MOUs, that um, um, memorandum of understandings with our sister agencies where we have clearly carved out the very interaction that the caller talked about and then how are each of the agencies in the big picture going to play in that arena. And then, of course, it's always escalated to the commissioner level, which then gets to the governor's cabinet level. Yeah. Specifically to uh, the, the point that you brought up, Jennifer, on carbon sequestration is uh, the governor's office has pulled together a group that is an interagency climate change group and we're, we're working right now to understand what are our, our inventory of CO2 emissions in the state and what are our sequestration capabilities with uh, forestry and also uh, with the geologic uh, formations in Indiana. So the state forester and I – are both on that group and we talk regularly about our state's ability to uh, sequester as much CO2 here in Indiana as possible before we have to look for solutions elsewhere. All right, Jennifer, thanks a lot for the call. And let's go next to Al. Al? Yes, uh, I have two questions. In an acute problem situation, uh, if the local authorities either fail to or decline to take effective action, after hours, on a weekend, what should citizens do to try to put a halt to um, a major pollution problem? And the second one would be with that carbon sequestration program where you're going to pump it underground, uh, what are the chances of uh, acid decomposition of the subsurface rock and uh, lubrication of uh, uh, inner strata surfaces causing earth, bringing about some earthquakes as happened in uh, Colorado when the Rocky Mountain Arsenal was pumping stuff underground. Hmm. All right, two questions. Al, I'll take, I'll t- Al, I'll take on the first one. Um, you are? I'm Scott Nelly. Yes. And, um, shoot, I just lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. After hours. Response. After hours. Yes, please. We have a complaint line that is uh, info.in.gov that you can get online anonymously and send in a text message or an email address. How about or, a phone number also? Or a phone number. We have it. I don't have that one memorized. Well, it's on our website again. Um, 800-451-6027. Thank you, Dan. Who will answer that at midnight? At midnight, it will actually go to a call box, and then we will call you back. Unless it's a spill. If it's a spill that you're reporting, that is staff 24-7. All right. And what, when, when is the callback? Come. The callback will be immediately the immediately. next morning. Okay. We have somebody that staffs that at 8 o'clock in the morning. Uh-huh. Well, now, no, Al, on this one, be fair. So you call in at, say, midnight and you report the issue. We pick up the phone at 8 o'clock. If it's not a spill, if it is a spill, call our spill line and we'll have somebody out there probably that night. What if it's a fire that's polluting an entire valley? Ah, that would, well, then we would be out there first thing the next morning because immediately our complaint coordinator, Tanya, immediately gets those calls, funnels them right down to the program, air, water, or land, whatever media that is of the issue, and then he immediately send out a compliance inspector if need. And everybody in the valley would already been exposed to the, to the pollutants for the uh, entire evening. The fire would be out and in all probability, and you might find the evidence destroyed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Good point. Well, well if, you, if, if there were, was a fire like that and there were firefighters out there, would they – if they saw a danger, would they contact they, you immediately? They immediately call us. Uh-huh. And, just, and what if they fail to do that? If they fail to do that, then there's – I mean that's the only mechanism we would know. Unfortunately, we can't look into the crystal ball. But a prime example was the Indianapolis fire that happened night before last. And that, that blaze started up at about 310. I was immediately up at 3.30 um, and we had first responders out there with the fire department in Indianapolis that mor- early morning. I was in the office a little after 5.30. We were already coordinating with Dan on our monitors to make sure that we didn't have toxins and other issues. That's how it works. Okay. All right. We do Thanks. rely on the local uh, relationships we have though to uh, rely on police and fire to be able to contact us. Uh, on your question about uh, carbon sequestration and acids forming and lubrication of of fault lines and and other uh, things that could lead to earthquakes. Uh, Right now, there are many different uh, sequestration pilot projects out there. We are learning about it literally as we speak here, Al. And the the, uh, 
proposed formations uh, we're talking about here in Indiana are thousands of feet below the surface, uh, not ones that if there was a, an acid formation problem, were very uh, far below any drinking water sources or any other sources of potable water that could be uh, put at risk. But as far as uh, fault lines and other type of uh, um, disturbances that could lead to earthquakes, that's why we have the pilot projects out there now to understand these relationships and whether or not uh, there could be any public safety uh, issues created. So jury's out on that still. Okay. Thanks, Al. Um, here's one that came in from from uh, chat, apparently. How exciting. Uh, when will IDEM restore the various grants that they suspended in December? I can take that one. Actually, we have 117 grants in our program and only three grants were temporarily suspended out of the 117. We were asked as an agency, as with all other agencies, to look at areas that we could temporarily put in stasis so that we maintained a cash balance not knowing what the projected revenue streams were going to be. It would be just like yourself at home trying to manage your checkbook and if you have a predictor out there that says your gas bill is getting ready to double or triple or some of your other streams that you have to write checks against is not – is going to increase or if you just took a pay cut, in this case our projected revenues are missed, you start to put some process in place to catch it as early on as you can. And that's what we did. We staced uh, or slowed down three of our grant programs. In this case, we temporarily suspended them about 18 months to be specific on that. We're looking at about 18 months for the state of Indiana to start to come out of the cycle where we think it makes good sense to reinstitute those three programs. But in the meantime, we have 114 of them that are going forward. Sounds like you got about 13 months left then for mm-hmm. the ones that are suspended. Correct. Right, we have one minute to go. Tim? Uh, as, as far as the, um, the, the grants, I think we should also – look more broadly at the state's overall spending in, on the environment and, and just how poor our record has been, which, which you know, is not unique to this administration. It's been going on for some time. About 1 percent of Indiana's state budget is spent on conservation in the environment, funding IDEM and DNR. And uh, if we want to provide a truly quality environment that benefits our economy and our people, uh, we've got to do much better than that. All right. And we are out of time. And we'll revisit the environment soon on Noon Edition, I'm sure. I want to thank Tim Maloney, Scott Nally, and Dan Murray for being here with us today. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Ariana Prothero, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home, office, and garage using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. Smithville Telephone Company, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922. Offering bundled packages, high-speed internet, and wireless phones. Smithville Telephone, local pride, global technology, information at smithville.net.